You're listening to the Racing Shame Podcast, Season 5. This is a bonus episode with special guest, Lillian So. The topic, pain, shame, and trauma in church life. Hello again, this is DJ Chuang on the Erasing Shame podcast. I've invited Lillian So back to chat with us about another slice of her life. Uh, as I'm getting to know Lillian, I am just totally fascinated with how much she has to offer the world. And I believe, uh, I, I thank you for being generous to share a little more of your life with us. And so in your work as a holistic life coach, I know you, you haven't found just the right word to encompass all that you do, uh, which includes yoga instruction, fitness training, um, communication, something. If I miss anything, you can just add to that. Life coaching, communication facilitation, and oh my God, all, all, the, all the healing modalities and, and the woo in between. <laughs> so many things. Yes. And. And uh, that, that has been so valu- valuable for high achievers and just normal people, uh, Asian Americans and non-Americans around the world. So uh, you can check out her website to learn more about her stories and how she's serving the world. And the link will be in the show notes at erasingshame.com. And uh, as I got to know you personally, you're Korean American, grew up in the Chicago area. And the topic we want to spend uh, some time talking about on this episode is how people, particularly Korean Americans and Asian Americans, which have some some similarities, how they experience the church, the ethnic Asian church. And we all have our war stories, whether you want to be the good kid or not, because people are imperfect. And it seems like church people are even more imperfect in some ways. And uh, you might even use the word trauma. I don't know. So tell us about your experience growing up and what's happened since. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate you, first of all, providing the space, letting me take up space on your show and sharing my story. And I just appreciate that so much. The the generosity is not lost on me. And I have so much gratitude. Thank you. Um, so I grew up in a Christian household. Um, I grew up when I was little. My grandma was with me until I was about eight years old. And then she passed. And she was a what they would call a born again Christian. She was fanatical. She was very highly involved in the church. My mom also grew up a very, very uh, devout Christian. My grandfather in Korea, he is a huge like missionary like Christ, Christ crusader. I don't know what you call him. You know, he's like, I, I joke and call him like the Billy Graham of Korea. If you go to his office, he has an orphanage. He has a Bible college. He has a, you know, he was a professor at a seminary. I mean, he, this man is like so, so, so heavily uh, involved and, and accomplished and just such a man of God. And so growing up in my household, it was, it was a very, very, uh, very, very Christian household. And my grandma, who's my dad's mom, my grandpa was in Korea. My mom's, my mom's dad was in Korea. I lived with my dad's mom, right? So my paternal 
grandmother. She being the devout born again that she was, she was always in the church and she, and me being the first firstborn daughter, she used to take me everywhere and be in and out of the church. And she particularly got involved with this church in the suburbs of Chicago. And I would say it's about a 45 minute drive out into the suburbs from the city. I grew up in the inner city of Chicago and my grandma found this church way out in the suburbs because she was like really into this pastor and the community and the whole thing. And she basically got our whole family on board to, that was it. Like that was the church that we went to. And I was kind of like a transplant. So I was basically forced to start attending this church at a very, very young age uh, transporting in and out of the city, these long drives. I would, I hated it so much. My grandma was like, she was that woman that would volunteer to like drive the van. You know, mm. she was, she was oh. the one that would, you, you know what I'm talking about? She would be the one to volunteer all the pickups. She would be the one that volunteered to do all this stuff and show up early and do the kitchen. And she was about it. And so I would get dragged around with her all the time. And I just have these memories of just hating it so much, you know? And then she passed when I was about seven, eight. And, oh my gosh, I, I've never seen, I never, I had no idea. People just, hundreds of people came to her funeral. I have this memory at like eight years old. And because of this relationship, this is like the backstory, because of this relationship that she had with the church and the community and whatnot, my parents felt like they had to keep this relationship going. And so even after my grandmother passed away, that was our church. And so in many ways, as I like to say, I was forced to go to this church all throughout junior high and into my teens until I basically graduated from high school and got to college. And uh, it was especially noticeable for me when I started getting a little bit older, as I started getting to junior high, uh, pre-teens, and then high school. I mean, forget about it by high school, but especially in my formative years, my coming of age years. Oh, it was traumatizing. I, I was so shamed all the oh. time by the kids, my peers in the church, because I was, th these are the memories that I have. I was a ghetto, poor city kid. And they would make these comments all the time. And it was like, it's like they had no idea. Like, I don't think they even had any idea how offensive and how humiliating their comments were. But it was so like, sorry. yeah, oh no, yeah. <laughs> but but it was like they would make these comments about like, like, oh, you're from the city, like, and they would literally. I, I have these memories still. I'm like in my late 30s now. I would have these memories of them literally looking visually down on me, and and like I would get older, and like and like kids would be like, oh, you still live in the city? Oh, you still live in Chicago? As if our family didn't make it enough to get out of the city and move to the suburbs as if we were still too poor and too ghetto and too whatever not enough to be able to make it out of the city and the thing is i never wanted to leave the city <laughs> I, i'm a city kid like that's I, my dad wanted to move us to the suburbs and my brother and i were like absolutely not hard no we do not like belong there we don't feel welcome like we don't want to go to the suburbs we we like it here in the city we feel like we belong in the city you know with all of the other asian american kids and i grew up in such a diverse neighborhood my high school was featured in newsweek for being the most diverse high school in the nation like hundreds of different like languages and ethnicities it was crazy and so 
so for me, like that was my experience. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. But then Monday through Friday, I'd be in the city and kicking it with my friends and like being, you know, like belonging and having this amazing time. And then every weekend I would be shipped out to this church and I was literally looked down on. Like I was, um, it was the first time that I felt a difference in class and like socioeconomic status and like, and class. It was the first time I actually really experienced that where it was like, oh, like, oh, you go to a Chicago public school. Oh, oh, that your parents own a store. Like, which I always joke about all the time. Cause I'm like, okay, wait, hold on. So like my parents own a store and that's like poor people stuff, but like you guys are better because you have a dry cleaner. It's like, I don't understand. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny, you know, cause I was like, right. Okay. I mean, it was just the, the hierarchy, the measuring that was always happening. And I just felt that constantly. I always felt this measuring. And the thing is, I was also like a city kid, right? So I dressed differently. I started coloring my hair at a very young age. I wore like baggy clothes. I was like a hip hop kid. Meanwhile, all the kids in the suburbs, they were all wearing Abercrombie. And they were all like about that suburban life. And so they would constantly like kind of like frown on me and like look at me as like this dirty ghetto city kid that wasn't smart enough. That wasn't, it was like, I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't rich enough. And I wasn't um, refined enough. Those were the things that I really remembered internalizing. And that was my internalized shame and trauma from the church growing up. I just, I already felt like I didn't belong. And I already felt like, and then there was mean girl stuff. You know, there were always like the cool girls, you know, there were, and I remember like, there were these like girls that were always like the cool, pretty ones, you know, the cool ones. And that I just, I just always felt like I was this like ugly duckling that was like, just, oh God, like who brought that peasant into the room? (laughs) And that was really traumatizing for me, you know, and I I just hated it so much. And my parents just forced me to go every week and I just hated it. So how did you survive? Okay. So I'm just going to get really real and, and, and yeah, like, (laughs) I mean, this, this is why we're here. You're raising shame. So let it go. At a certain point, I got really angry and I got really hateful because I just, you just, you can't take it anymore at a certain point. You can only take so much humiliation before you, I feel like you have one of two ways of, and there's a lot in between, but like, I feel like the two extremes, you're either going to completely shut down and hide and become invincible, invisible, but not invincible, invisible, or you're going to completely be like, F this, I'm out of here. Like, I don't need this and just be a complete rebel. So after I finally, uh, like got like to like teenage years, I would still go with my parents to the church and I would tell them that I was going to go. And then, and then we'd be like, okay, see you after service. And I just wouldn't even, I wouldn't even go to service. I would ditch church. I would walk across the street to the park and smoke cigarettes in anger. I would angrily smoke cigarettes and like, and be, and, and, and just brood in my hate and anger and resentment for how I just felt so rejected. And then I would finish up and then I would like do, and then I had all the things, right? Like I would like wash up, I would, you know, eat my breath mints and do whatever and like spray everything down and then be like, okay, great. Awesome. And that's how I survived. I would say that that is how I survived. I just stopped 
showing up. I didn't go anymore. And I just, I was like, I just got to get through this next year. I just got to get through. And it was like, and this just happened week after week after week. And I just like, and I just wanted wow. to end. Yeah. It was, it was, wow. it was a very, it was a very clear moment of my life. Well, I know this is your life story and it would be more proper to give you at least an hour or two to unpack all the um, stages of how you went through your healing journey mm -hmm. and where that's put you spiritually and faith-wise um, uh, to give our listeners and viewers a little context. Uh, 70 to 75% of Korean Americans attend church. Mm -hmm. So this is a very common part of the Korean American experience. Mm -hmm. And what Lillian is experiencing not just because of her uh, social marginalization, uh, Asians and Koreans can be very good at picking out any little difference of nonconformity and marginalizing them, mm -hmm. whether it's grades or schools or clothing or whatever else. But what's funny is being a city girl that you have been and you still color your hair, uh, you're, you're just trend forward. I mean, that, that's the, what the cool girls do now. <laughs> well, I always laugh about it now, you know, because it's like, oh, wow, like these same kids that used to, you know, that used to look down on me because I lived in the city as if it was like a marker of like poor socioeconomic status or whatever is like, then they all graduate from college. And then what do you know? The city's the cool place to be. Everyone wants to move to the city and they all want to claim Chicago. But when I was 12, that was, you know, where the poor people lived and you weren't good enough and you were dirty and ghetto and unrefined. So it's just fascinating. You know, I, I, that always gave me a chuckle as I got a little older. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're in a better place. Um, I, I know we're not going to take the time to talk about your healing journey, but um, let's talk about um, how you're helping others um, heal as they have also experienced similar experiences. Because um, you've noticed that as you work with different um, people, particularly Korean Americans, that, oh, you weren't alone. They're experiencing this kind of trauma, too. Exactly. Exactly. And I do. I work with, I would say, probably 75, maybe even 80 percent of my clients right now are Asian American. And it's been incredibly, incredibly healing for me and my clients to realize, oh, right, like this is like a thing, you know, just being constantly othered judged, you know, for all the smallest differences, like you said, how, how easy it is to be, you know, ridiculed or shamed because you don't look like everybody else or because, or if, you know, you don't make the same choices as everyone else. Like you said, this nonconformity is very much frowned upon in many ways. It's like, oh, well, we're all over here doing this. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, ew, you know? And so in many ways, I work with a lot of those Asian Americans. I work with the black sheep the unicorns, the ones that maybe still went through all the motions because they were being good daughters and, you know, good children to their parents, good students, and they were doing the things, but maybe most of their lives, they kind of never felt like they had their own agency, right? They felt like they had to do what their parents wanted to do. They were, they did what their pastors told them to do. They did what everyone else wanted them to do. And then as they get into their late 20s, as they get into their 30s, all of a sudden there's like, again, this, this anxiety, this, this unresolved, you know, like this disconnect, it starts to eventually catch up to you. And 
I've learned that a lot of the Asian Americans I work with are the ones that experience some kind of othering and shaming in that way of feeling like, why am I the different one? Why am I, why am I the one that isn't accepted by the rest of my family or the rest of my community or the rest of my people, you know, whatever. And so that's been incredibly healing to, uh, to get together with those people and facilitate healing for them, as well as realizing for me, like, wow, I wasn't alone. Because when you go through these things, when you experience shame, when you experience, you know, um, rejection and othering, it's so isolating. You know, you think it's just you. And then you start to, again, internalize, like, what's wrong with me? I'm broken. I'm a mess. I'm a mistake. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be in this world, which, I mean, we can go into a whole rabbit hole of like, you know, this is how we end up with high suicide rates and whatever. Anyways, but, you know, you start to really internalize and you feel so alone and like, there's just, you can't be helped. I am broken. I am just, I'm not a good person. People don't like me. I don't belong on this earth. I don't belong anywhere. My own family rejects me. My own community rejects me. My own people reject me. And so it's so healing for myself and my clients to get together and be like, oh my gosh, I thought it was just me. It's not. Oh my gosh, we have each other and we can heal this together. Like, I see you. I see you and me. I see me and you. Wow. Wow. Like, thank goodness we got here. We got this far so that we can see that, you know, that it wasn't, they were just doing their best. They didn't know. We didn't know what we know now. And now we can start to like, heal and move forward and, you know, re, re, uh, create, recreate, co-create a new identity, a new reality for ourselves. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And it gives uh, all of us hope that we're not alone and, uh, wherever you might wind up on the faith journey, uh, going through the healing with someone who understands is so, so valuable. And if we can be a part of reducing suicides and uh, mental illness through the sharing of stories like this. That's, that's what we can do together. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and it's interesting because it has come full circle for me in a lot of ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I have nothing against the church. I just realize now through my own healing process and through my own journey, I just want to make sure I come back full circle to that was I associated so much of my pain and my shame and my wounds around it's Korean people, it's church people, it's the church, it's the church's fault, it's the Korean church goer people's fault or whatever. And, you know, I realized it was, that was part of my experience and that was part of my journey. And, and I've completely in many ways, like reintegrated, you know, faith and spiritual practices and, you know, and, and all of those things that I learned, you know, through the church and what it actually means to truly like, you know, like embody like compassion and all the things that you actually learn in church, like it's come back full circle for me. So it, it's, it's been an incredible journey. Like I, I can 100% look back and then be like, wow, like that was such a source of shame and humiliation and pain for me that took me through this whole roller coaster of now, like actually coming back and the thing that heals me the most are the things that I actually learned growing up in that church where like a lot of my origin pain stories come from in the first place. Wow. That is so powerful. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for sharing more of your life with me and with us. And I want to encourage our viewers and listeners to get to know Lillian So. And her website is meetlillianso.com. And she's very responsive on social media. You'll see links in the show notes at erasingshame.com. And uh, Lord willing, perhaps our paths will cross in person. I would love to meet you in real life, IRL, as they say. But um, that ends this episode of Erasing Shame. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Erasing Shame podcast. Check out our website at erasingshame.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please subscribe on any podcast app like Apple, Google, Spotify, or on Facebook and YouTube. And please add a rating, a review, and a share so more people can experience the freedom and healing that comes from erasing shame.